This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. You may or may not know the story about a uh, Hamilton father who's been trying to keep, uh, well, at least uh, have more say over what his uh, kids are hearing and seeing in school. And uh, he calls some of the teachings specifically in and around the sex ed uh, curriculum false teachings. Uh, a Hamilton father has lost his latest court battle, wants to be allowed to pull his children out of class when they learn uh, when they learn what he calls false teachings that go against his Greek Orthodox religion. Uh, telling children that homosexuality is uh, normal is not factual, uh, he has said. Uh, but the Superior Court Justice uh, turned down the request uh, in ruling that inclusion and equality comes before individual religious accommodation in public education. Uh, religious freedom in schools is dead. Uh, the father said, why should Muslim girls who wear the hijab be accommodated? Uh, the Hamilton Wentworth School Board Chair Todd White has said it would be impossible to remove students from class when parents believe the subject matter is questionable. To talk more about all of this, Maureen Dennis is with us, mother of four, parenting expert, uh, founder of WeWelcome.ca. We were chatting with her last week and around uh, bottle flipping and such. Uh, Maureen, how are you today? Great, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, I probably want to spend less time in and around the subject matter and, and, you know, what everybody's personal opinion is on the sex ed and stuff. Um, And I guess my greater question is, and and your thoughts on, um, should parents be allowed to customize their kids' education? How much leeway should we have with it when it comes to such things? as uh, taking them outside of the box of what a normal uh, classroom is about? Well, you know, it's an interesting it's an interesting way of looking at it from this father's perspective because, you know, he's looking at it and, and thinking he, he, his real goal is to protect his children, which as parents we can all understand. The problem comes in is when we try to draw this line on what normal and, as he would say, fact-based um, education is. And so, you know, when you look back in the story, his real, his real um, issue came in when um, a speaker came into the school and basically called his religion archaic. And from there, this, this looks like the story has snowballed um, to a point where, you know, it's gone much beyond that, too. He has, a, he has a list, and his list, I think, is where it really comes in to be just not, not practical, not um, fitting with what the school board's policies are. I mean, as a parent, inclusion and equality are hugely important to me, and that is what the public school um, mandate is, is around these conversations. So it's really difficult to say, you know, as a part of um, education that is inclusive and promoting equality, to then be taking kids out for different topics because they don't agree, you know? And so his lists are really curious, you know? Um, and I think a little politically motivated, but that's my opinion. I'll ask yeah, you. I'll ask you. I'll ask you your yeah. your opinion on that in a sec. But I'm playing devil's advocate here, Maureen. He would say, "Well, you know, you're talking about being inclusionary. You're not including him. You're not including his views." I suppose, but then he wants to know. So basically, what his ask is for anyone who's not familiar entirely with the story is that he's asking for a heads up whenever topics such as sex, environmental issues astrology, wizardry, witchcraft, um, anything to do with same-sex marriage, LGBT conversations. I mean, these are conversations that you just don't know when they're going to come up. Now, I could see if he was having, if they were having this speaker in, and there might be some questionable content, 
no matter what the speaker was coming in. I mean, that's for the school board to decide whether that's an appropriate speaker to have in. And if there is an, a chance that it might offend some of the audience, I think that that is something that the school board should be looking into, whether that was an appropriate speaker to have in. However, everyday conversations within the classroom, that, that is really difficult. Could you imagine a teacher's position in trying to figure out whether this conversation about, you know, little Sally who, who spent the weekend with her two moms going to the zoo, whether that's an appropriate conversation to have. And so that's, I think, where, you know, what he's looking for and what it has snowballed into were two different things. So uh, this, you, why can't this be as simple as if you don't like the class we're going to have today, then you sit out? Well, I think, is, that, or is that I think even, in some that, cases that, that is what, and I could, be, I could be incorrect on this, but I believe that that has was offered to him. So parents have the opportunity to say, I would prefer my kids sit out of the sex ed class. I yeah. believe that is true. I could be wrong with the Hamilton-Wentworth school, uh, District School Board. However, that is not, that's what I'm saying. If that was what was asked, I think that that is something that can be accommodated. Um, however, if it's in, in normal conversation that is not in the sex ed class, say it's in English, like I'm saying, maybe it's just in the classroom, kids talking. They're having a conversation about, you know, you look at wizardry and witchcraft, well, they're talking about Harry Potter. Yeah. It should be a very, very normal conversation for any kid to have. But where is that line? And to draw that line and to have it be mandated that he be notified when a kid might talk about Harry Potter, that's just not reasonable. Is this? Right? Do you think this is a case of special interest versus special interest? I mean, do you think this is about parenting, or do you think this is about politics? You know, it's. I think it's going to come up more and more, to be honest. It's, it's, it's not easy to have a lot of different cultures and religions in one place. And so there are, this is going to be, you know, a continuing... Um, evolution for everyone as Canadians to figure out what normal is and what, you know, what everybody is okay with. Um, that's why I like that inclusion and equality. I think learning and respecting that not everybody thinks the same way as you is just fine. But having a judgment or, you know, um, you know, I, I would be concerned about what his kids or what some other kids might be getting from that as far as like what you teach at home and what your beliefs are. Is, is entirely up to you, and, and I, you know, and my kids would have learned to, we, we would as a family respect that. However, I, you know, bringing across something that would be saying that it is not wrong and that it is not normal, your family is not normal, you are not normal, that goes against yeah. all of their inclusion and equality, and that goes into bullying. And so I, as a parent, wouldn't want to see any parents or families being, um, allowed to have specific interests that far are in the form of bullying encouraged in our public schools. So how much leeway should we allow parents when it comes to customizing their kids' education? How much do we accommodate? You know what? It's a tough one because if you want specific teachings, then I think that you need to look at a specific school that is going to provide those. I think that if you are, as a parent, you have your own family's beliefs and you are okay with that, with them being um, confident in those beliefs, but respectful of other people's beliefs and that this is, this is, they can all get along and just because you don't believe what I believe doesn't mean that we can't um, respect each other's opinions on something, then that's when you have to look at what is right for your family. 
And I think that that's where this is this is where it gets tricky because he he doesn't see that as um, he sees it as a specific teachings, but does not want to remove his kids from public school. Um, I remember being in school when they took out the Lord's Prayer and and you know slowly moved towards making schools more secular. Um, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, with lots of different cultures coming in to the country, there's more uh, there's more of this discussion. But then again, it's always sort of been there, hasn't it? I mean, haven't we always had these discussions? I think we have. I mean, you know, I think that you're seeing more and more different cultures um, come to Canada, which is fantastic. Um, but I think that the challenge is, is just figuring out that line of politically correctness. And I think, you know, all of North America right now is trying to figure out what that line is and what's inclusive and what is still respectful of different cultures. You know, I love that my kids learn about Diwali and they also, you know, celebrate Halloween and they do Christmas and we do Hanukkah with friends. And there's, there's so much culture and celebration and things to learn that if you look at it that way, rather than getting up in arms that you might offend someone by saying Merry Christmas. You know, I, I just saw something this, this morning that said, regardless of what, you know, seasonal greeting someone, if someone said Happy Kwanzaa to me, I'd say thank you. Yeah. You know that the intent is there. It is, mm-hmm. it is, you are being inclusive in celebrating something that you do. And how is that offensive to me? So, you know, I think that um, it's, it's a challenge, but if you take it from that inclusion and equality perspective, there's nothing wrong with any of these celebrations. There just may not be what your family do, but why not learn about it? This is a global, global society that our kids are growing up in, and they, to be ignorant of other cultures that are living next to you, just doesn't, that just doesn't make sense to me. It seems as well that uh, we're becoming a land of extremes in the sense that each extreme view of, of pretty much everything is looking for support. And, you know, after reading this story and, and listening to uh, uh, Anthony Urcioli interview the father on, on his show, um, you know, all of a sudden, you know, this seems less about the kids and more about spreading your belief. And, uh, and, 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 and I think we're getting lost there. I think that we have to remember, you know, the reasons that we took the Lord's Prayer out of the school in the first place. And here, you know, religious uh, views seem to be impeding and, and making their way back into the school system. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really an interesting perspective. I mean, we've, we've sent, spent a lot of time looking at the U.S. right now and, and what is going on and, and how did they get it so wrong as far as, like, you know, that Donald Trump is actually president-elect now. And when you look at where that's coming from, you look at it and go, you know, there is a fundamental difference between the way Canadians think and the way Americans think in that, you know, we are here for the greater good. And so when we start to look at more and more of these individual rights within the greater good, that's where our challenge comes in, right? So, you know, we ban peanut butter from all of the schools and all nuts because that is for the greater good of all the kids there. One kid might have an allergy, so let's take it out, right? Versus my kid has the right to take a peanut butter sandwich to school over your kid that might die because of it, <laughs> right? So yeah. we have to look yeah. at the greater yeah. good here, because if we look at the individual rights of every single child, I don't know how we could possibly, um, like I said, you know, how would a teacher in everyday classroom yeah. be able to say, to navigate that, to say, oh, okay, we're talking about, you know, um, basically teaching 20 different lessons. Oh my gosh. Yes. And, and, and the head, what he was, what this father was asking for was a heads up on a conversation that they have no way of predicting is going to happen or not. 
So he, how are they supposed to logistically take all else out? How are the teachers supposed to logistically let him know that that conversation might come up? Because it's not scripted. An everyday lesson is, you know, they have the curriculum, but those conversations that come out of that, that's what you want to encourage. You want kids to tell stories from there and to have their own beliefs and, and to share those, but not in a judgmental way. Maureen Dennis has been with us, mother of four, parenting expert, founder of WeWelcome.ca. Maureen, thanks for your time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, not sure if you uh, heard about this, but an 11-year-old boy led police on a chase along Highway 400 after he had played Grand Theft Auto and pondered what it would be like to uh, experience it in real life. when you think about it, it's very, very fortunate that something's very serious didn't happen here. Carrie Schmidt is with us, uh, of course, Sergeant with OPP and with us now. Good afternoon, Carrie. How you doing today? Hey, very good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time to join us. I mean, when I first heard this story, I must admit I smirked a bit, but boy, oh boy, this is a serious scenario, isn't it? Well, absolutely. Pretty frightening. Uh, and the moment he hit the road is the moment our 911 dispatch uh, call center got lit up with calls. Uh, people calling in this vehicle all over the highway, back and forth uh, through all lanes, up and down on speed, just unable to drive straight. And, uh, and drivers were actually trying to alert this driver to get him to stop. Uh, he didn't. He continued right to King Road, just north of the of Toronto. Uh, that's where OPP were able to uh, catch up to him and, and, and see him as he was getting back onto the southbound lanes of the uh, 400. And uh, as soon as uh, we saw that vehicle, again, all over the highway, we lit it up with our lights trying to get him to stop. And he was going about half the speed limit. So he was crawling along, which is pretty dangerous in and of itself because people aren't expecting a car to be going that slow on right. the highway. It was dark around 1130, almost midnight. Oh my! And, uh, and as soon as we uh, hit our lights, the vehicle took off like a shot, uh, and it was now speeding well in excess of the speed limit. Again, weaving all over the place. One of the officers got up beside the vehicle to take a look inside the vehicle to see what's going on, and saw what he thought was a pretty young driver. And uh, and the driver really wasn't making any attempt to uh, stop or slow down or or obey officers' directions. And um, fortunately, he did stop, and he came over to the right shoulder. And stopped, and that was great. The officer stopped behind him, and just as the officer stepped out of his vehicle to go talk to the driver, the guy took off again. And uh, we had other officers right there as well, so we were able to box the car in and get him stopped uh, altogether and and get him out of the vehicle, only to discover this kid, 11-year-old boy, uh, was out uh, taking his parents' uh, minivan for a test drive to see what it's like to drive because he thought he was doing pretty well playing Grand Theft Auto on his video game and want to try for real. Incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Wow. Um, so uh, once you realize that, this, that, that it was a, an 11-year-old kid, how do you react? What do you, what do, you do then? How, what do you say to the parents? What, well, what happens? What legally can you do? What do you do? How do you handle this? Well, yeah, I wasn't there when it happened. I, I found out about it like you, and my jaw dropped uh, like everyone else's, I guess. And uh, hearing the story from the officers, uh, it, it's just incredible uh, that this person uh, thought this would be a good idea. Now, he's 11 years old. Uh, we're not going to charge him with anything. He's, he's of the age of, of not being able to potentially understand what his consequences are. Uh, you know, if you're so lulled into the game that uh, you think you can do whatever you want and uh, crash your car on the video game, and all you got to do is, is uh, reset or 
get new power or get a new life and, and you have unlimited lives. Whereas you really only have one. Hmm. And sadly, you know, a woman died yesterday morning or yesterday night uh, because of a possible impaired driver and a dangerous driver and aggressive driver. And this kind of behavior is absolutely uh, un, unacceptable on provincial highways. And it doesn't matter if you're an 11-year-old kid or a licensed driver, because last night, uh, 400 Rutherford Road, just north of the GTA, another officer was out doing some speed enforcement, got a guy doing just about 200 kilometers per hour, got the guy stopped, it was an adult, and uh, he's now charged with impaired driving. Hmm. So it doesn't matter if it's alcohol or if it's your mindset that thinks that uh, you're in control and that nothing bad will happen. Uh, well, let me tell you, we get called to when things go horribly wrong, and it is absolutely a devastating, heartbreaking uh, tragedy for that to happen. Uh, any charges for the parents on this, Carrie? Uh, not at this time, no. Uh, apparently they were asleep in bed, and unknown, uh, unbeknownst to them, uh, their son took off with the family car uh, with the keys. So um, yeah, at this point, uh, no charges have been laid. I'm sure we'll uh, be keeping that uh, on the front of our uh, conversation here as we move forward. But uh, at this point, no charges uh, are anticipated or be, have, have been laid at this time. OPP Sergeant Kerry Schmidt has been with us talking about the 11-year-old boy who police apprehended along Highway 400 after he took his uh, parents' van. Kerry, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Stay safe out there. All right. Thank you very much. You thank too. you. Uh, wow. Uh, unbelievable. Let's bring in Gary Dierenfeld, social worker, yoursocialworker.com. Hello, Gary. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. Isn't this crazy, eh? So uh, you're a parent. Uh, the police knock on your door, not only with your son, but your minivan. How do you handle yes. that one? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, this plunges us, plunges us into that debate as to whether or not violent video games influence children's behavior. Um, of course, the answer is yes. Not every child will be vulnerable to that influence, but certainly... This is one for the record books. What about the parents? Um, I guess it's always easy to look that way, but at the end of the day, they're the ones responsible. Uh, someone brought to my attention that you shouldn't even be playing this game at 11 years old, and it's rated for 17 plus. Um, you know, <laughs> and, 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 you know, who's minding the store, so to speak? I know. You know what? Um, boy, do I ever feel impotent sometimes. We tell parents, uh, what what would be better for their kids, and so often it falls on deaf ears. Parents feel uh, overworked, burdened, guilty, and many are acquiescing to the kids. Many parents, good parents, they're asleep uh, themselves in their home thinking their child is safe and things like this happen. So I'm loath to blame the parents, but there is something for parents to be learning about in this that we do want to monitor what our kids uh, are exposed to. So how do you punish, or what do you say to the kid that's just come home in the back of a police car or the back of the minivan with the police driving it? So um, we really, you know, I wouldn't think in terms of punishment in this circumstance. I would think in terms of a, a pretty good discussion and, and, and a family dialogue. And I would certainly think twice about the influence of these video games on that child in particular. So it wouldn't be unreasonable to withdraw the use of video games from this child because he's already proven he can be unduly influenced. But I don't think of that as punishment. I, I think of that as reasonable parenting. Um, and when you're going to take something like that away from a child, you got to know that the child is going to protest because mm -hmm. they're used to having things 
clearly that uh, wasn't meant for their eyes, and they think they can get away with this stuff. So in view of the protest behavior, though, we don't succumb to that, but we do want to offer kids reasonable other alternatives. So that's where we look to extracurricular activities. Better than a video game in hand is a hockey stick. Mm. Uh, Better than video game in hand is going to an art class, a music class, uh, reading a book. Uh, There are so many other activities that we can have our kids engage in that are healthy, social, um, and where they actually learn a skill. So this is the thinking that I I suggest parents uh, take this to. You know, I've got, uh, you know, my boy's nine, um, other one, girl's 14. And, you know, e- even at those ages, which are north and south of where this where this kid is, um, you know, e- even my nine-year-old, I-, I-, I just can't imagine him getting in behind the wheel of a car and driving it thinking it would be okay. I know. I know. But the other thing I have to appreciate is that that is sometimes the thinking of the young mind. Yeah. They're not trying to be bad per se, and they they don't have the cognitive capacity to truly appreciate the dangerousness of what they're doing. Like they get it on one level. I can understand them but not they don't have the life experience. I can understand that a hundred percent, Gary, but you have to know that even an eleven year old boy knows, know better than that. knows over and above the game, get the video games out of it. The you know the boy knows that getting the wheel, behi- getting behind the wheel of a of a vehicle uh, at 11 years of age is illegal and is wrong and can get you in trouble. So over and above the influence of the game, this is about knowing right and wrong. It, it's like common sense, isn't it? And again, I understand it's only an 11 year old kid, but even an 11 year old kid knows he's not allowed to drive a car. Right, but that's where common sense isn't necessarily so common, and we're talking about the 11 year old mind who doesn't think through the consequences of the behavior and has no belief that they're going to get into trouble, that they're going to get caught. And so in that mind, their thinking is, okay, this isn't good. I'm going to have to do it um, sneakily, but I think I'm, I'm going to be good for it and I'll get back before anyone is the wiser. And from that perspective, this kid just isn't unique. If, if I may take this in a bit of a different direction, today, you know, my column appears on The Spectator on Mondays. Today's column talks about um, a 10-year-old child uh, with her cell phone. Kids today get so addicted to these materials, to the cell phone, to the video game, and I don't know that parents yet realize the addictive nature of these, of these devices. When the kids use them, they actually get a hit of, of the neurotransmitter that, that um, engenders that feeling of euphoria. It is addictive. When we ask kids to monitor themselves, when we ask them to stop using these devices, it's like telling somebody addicted to crack cocaine to just use a little bit. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. don't have the capacity. Yeah. And that's where we as parents have to step in, set rules, limits, expectations, and and be unequivocal uh, about that. In much the same way, no one would, would give that 11-year-old the keys to the car voluntarily. 
but yet we give these devices and the video games to our children voluntarily. In one respect, this has made my life easier because... You, before, you could say things. You could, well, In the old days, they used to whack you in the rear end with a slipper. Yeah. Um, you know, all, you could do anything until you're blue in the face. They're not listening. You take away that device, Gary, you have their attention immediately. Immediately. It is it's like removing crack cocaine. Bingo. It is the best disciplinary tool you can use is taking yeah. away the device. It brings them to their knees. Right. Retired officer Perry Mason uh, you, who you may yeah, know. I remember uh, him, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Hamilton Police uh, Officer, worked for the last 10 years of his career as a school li- liaison yeah. officer, so being a cop in, in, in schools. He and I did a workshop last week at Buchanan uh, Public School on uh, safe technology. And the message we wanted to convey is there's no such thing. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as safe technology. There are things that you can do to make it safer, but there's no such thing as safe. And uh, the same with these violent video games. So as you're there, perhaps monitoring, restricting, um, waiting until they're of a particular age, there's no such thing as the appropriate use of games that allow people to beat others up with impunity. Mm-hmm. These things will have an impact on the child and adolescent brain. It will wire their brains differently from how yours and mine is wired. And so we want people to get that message, parents to get that message, that just like kids can only eat the food you bring into your house from your house, they only have access to what you purchase for them. Mm -hmm. None of these kids can, can purchase these expensive game consoles, games, cell phones, and, and carry the, the monthly charges for half these things, that's up to us. And I know that we're, we're harried as parents. I know that we're time-restricted. At the end of the day, though, these are not the appropriate substitutes. Uh, many will say, well, they're all doing it. It's, it's this, it's that, it's whatever. But really what it is is it's easier to hand them a device, isn't it? Well, it really is. And, you know, one of the things that Perry Mason was um, uh, trying to get across to parents last week is today, kids, you know, as young as 10, they're actually at a social disadvantage if they don't have a smartphone. Mm-hmm. You know, because long gone are the days where somebody picks up a landline and yeah. phones their friend and says, hey, come on over, let's play. It's all done by texting. Yeah. And so now if your kid doesn't have that, they are socially isolated. Mm -hmm. So we're not trying to throw these devices out, uh, you know, bar none. But we do, again, come back to those limits and expectations. And parents, you got to know what's on your kids' uh, devices. And if they're watching the video games, they will will get addicted to it. Because that's how they're made, for crying out loud. All right, Gary Dierenfeld has been with us, social worker, yoursocialworker.com. What do you do when the police bring your uh, child home, 11 years old, uh, along with the minivan in tow because he's taken it while you were sleeping? Time to unplug. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> uh, Gary, uh, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. All the best, Scott. And just this gentle reminder to hide the keys. <laughs> there it, you go. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
I'm going to read you a portion of a note uh, from, uh, well, this person has to remain anonymous, so we'll keep it that way. Uh, He says, good morning, Scott. Let me first start by commenting you for uh, not being afraid of speaking up uh, and speaking out your mind uh, to fight all those things that is called freedom and democracy, uh, which for a lot of years I was not able to enjoy under the Cuban regime. Over the past days, I've read multiple articles in various newspapers about Fidel Castro. I have also read some comments posted by different people replying to those articles, and I cannot believe the ignorance of some, which includes our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. This is why I'm writing this letter to you as a Cuban-Canadian. I'm extremely proud to be part of this beautiful country that opened uh, its doors to my family under a very difficult situation. I would like to take this opportunity to thank Canada for welcoming my family to this lovely country where democracy and freedoms are the base for every living soul. Uh, Also, I would like to clarify some of the articles and comments praising Fidel Castro and the Cuban regime. There seems to be a misconception in regards to the uh, offered free education and health care, etc. It seems like everybody thinks Cuban uh, Cubans have free education and health care. Uh, whoever thinks that tells me they do not know the hidden truth, which is education is not free from one grade uh, is not free when from grade seven. My school, my whole school, would be sent to work for four weeks in the mountains to collect coffee beans or other farms to plant tobacco. It's not free when from grade ten to twelve all the high schools are. Located in the countryside, uh, where you would have to work the whole morning in the fields, and then in the afternoon you would have your regular classes. It's not free when you finish your university education, and the government sends you uh, to whatever location they deem necessary with minimum wage for nearly three years. When it comes to health, the, the health system, we have free doctors, but no medicine to cure anybody. We have doctors that are vets because all the good doctors have been sent to Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador. Uh, and we get nothing but inexperience. There is low electricity bills here because we spend most of the time under darkness due to rotational scheduled outages. Just thought to share with you a little bit of my old life in Cuba. Thanks, uh, God, for Canada. And then goes on and goes on and goes on. He says, I'm sorry for venting, uh, but I guess that I can finally speak out my mind after many years of being afraid to speak out in a country where walls have ears and then without reason you could disappear without anybody knowing where. I love Canada and I consider myself a proud Canadian where my kids now have the opportunity to enjoy the freedom and democracy. But Cuba is not the all-inclusive resorts that a lot of Canadians get to experience. Uh, and then goes on to say, please keep my name and email address confidential due to the fact that I could still be in trouble if I try to visit my family and friends back in Cuba. So uh, I think that's why people are upset when, um, I guess, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, refers to him as a remarkable leader and has done so much for the country and, and what have you. And I'm a little bit older than Justin Trudeau, and I remember being a kid and learning about all the Bay of Pigs scenario and the Cuban Missile Crisis, and it was an extremely scary time because, you know, uh, people were worried that, that, that Castro would put Russian missiles on Cuba aimed at America. It was a very, very scary time. So it just seems to be a bit more rosier picture Uh, than what the Prime Minister has painted. That being said, 
Obviously, the perception of Castro has changed over the years. To talk more about all of this, uh, Christopher Baker is with us, travel writer, photographer, uh, expert on the island's culture, politics, history, and and economics, and is with us now. Hello, Christopher. How are you today? Uh, I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, Are you surprised by how divisive this celebration slash mourning actually is? Oh, not not surprised at all. I've been following and traveling uh, to Cuba for 25 years, and of course, uh, the whole question of Cuba Fidel is so divisive, not least because uh, whilst I certainly agree that um, there have been tremendous benefits uh, in Cuba that have come from Fidel's actions, it has been at a brutal cost. And so you have an exile community, particularly in Miami, that has tried to shape this unipolar uh, vision of Fidel as the brutal dictator. I think that's far overstated, whilst I admit to uh, the excess of human rights issues. But it's a much broader uh, question than that. You uh, read at length, for example, from the um, Cuban-Canadian, and I would be in agreement with the vast majority of that, even though it's very, very outdated. Much of that has changed significantly in the past couple of decades. You know, schools in the countryside, etc. Kids are no longer sent for work. Um, but I think more importantly is to understand what the issues were that needed resolving in 1959 and what the revolution was about. You had a brutal dictator called Batista, supported by the USA, which ran the show in Cuba, at the same time that the World Bank and United Nations speak of 40% illiteracy, uh, 40% or so of people with no health care access whatsoever. So uh, that needs to be put into the balance of the equation. Uh, so what are we missing here? Um, I don't know that we're missing anything. I mean, it's, it's important to retain the balance. It is not black and white. It's easy to say it's all about Fidel being a brutal dictator, etc. I think that really is a myopic viewpoint. And I think uh, your, your uh, prime minister understood that. He understands that this is far more complex that Fidel indeed did bring a lot of benefits to the Cubans and that there is still tremendous affection in Cuba uh, for Fidel. Those who feel the opposite, obviously many of them have left, and uh, many of the others obviously can't speak so openly in Cuba. We acknowledge that. But you have to acknowledge the benefits that he brought and still brings. Uh, and, and again, not to, not to lighten that in any way, but many would say that affection is there because they don't know any better. No, that's nonsense. I mean, I've spent 25 years traveling to Cuba. I spend about seven months a year there now. Primarily, I'm leading tours, but I'm authoring my books and doing film work. And I keep a very open mind. And I've made some um, 180-degree shifts in my own perspectives. Um, there is genuine affection, even amongst many people, uh, even young people, who understand that the revolution has run its course. They feel like Fidel was, you know, couldn't get with the times, and they would, they're certainly welcoming for the new openings that are beginning to show in Cuba, and they're, they're open, open, hoping for more. At the same time, there is still a tremendous affection for Fidel. They understand the benefits that he brought. I'll speak for example, to, about my girlfriend who um, comes from a very poor, uh, she's black, she comes from a very poor family, but she had the benefit of a tremendous education, um, and that is reflected in her professional um, capacity these days, a violinist with the National Orchestra. And it's hard to think that she would be in that position 
had that revolution not happened. So again, you need to bring this into the equation. So would you say Castro's uh, communism was needed to bring the country out of where it was and to get it where it is? Of course, there's a, a common perception, which I will agree with, that he betrayed the revolution in the sense that he had said that it would establish democracy. I've met the man personally, and I saw the kind of a megalomaniac aspect to his personality once he was in power. He was, wasn't going to give it up. Uh, but there's no doubt that he had broad support across the entire spectrum of society in 59 because the problems in Cuba, the social problems, economic problems, were so severe. And it's easy to forget that. Havana, yes, was the wealthiest tropical city in the world, and that's all gone, of course, destroyed the upper and middle classes, but at the same time, so much of Cuba looked like Haiti still looks today. That's gone. I mean, they built millions of homes for landless people, people living in hovels, education, health, etc. It may not be perfect. We understand that. But I think to just focus on Fidel's human rights questions, which are undeniable, misses the broader picture. How, how has the world's perception, or how did, or how had the world's perception changed of Castro over the decades? Well, he, he himself had mellowed. Of course, there was this period of uh, intense political uh, conflict when he was helping spread uh, revolution around the world, and the Soviet Union still existed, and it was all part of the Cold War dimension, and you referenced the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, which was a result, of course, of the failure of the Bay of Pigs, an effort by the states to um, overthrow him by military invasion. And then Kennedy, not very well known, but Kennedy, Kennedy put in place a full U.S. military invasion for October 1964, and that forced Fidel to ask for, for missiles. So we kind of, America got itself into the, mm-hmm. the missile mess, if you will. But Fidel has mellowed. I mean, that, that period of exporting revolution ended. The Soviets forced him to end it, by the way. By the 80s, that was history. He himself mellowed. And, of course, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, which is where Cuba's contemporary economic problems really stem from, um, Cubans have been doing pretty good uh, under the Soviet largesse. But since then, of course, Fidel had had to open up um, to private enterprise in limited part, and Raul has expanded that significantly. You go to Cuba these days, and uh, those people who speak of uh, lack of freedom of speech are going to be amazed at the changes that have happened in the last few years. Most of the public parks throughout Cuba these days, the kids are on their uh, cell phones, uh, checking out the Internet and Facebook, etc. So um, this is a different reality these days. Uh, you met him. What stands out? Um, well, there's one thing that stood out, um, the fact that uh, it was his way or the highway. Um, I was with, been with the Minister of Tourism that morning, and uh, he got himself in a conflict over, he, he was quoting uh, statistics on education. He, he deals in finite numbers. He doesn't round them out, and he was saying, ex- he, he calculated exactly how much they were spending on computers and CD discs and whatnot, and asked the Tourism Minister to get out his calculator to confirm that. And when it was a different number on the calculator, he lost his temper, blamed the tourism minister, and we witnessed a 10-minute discourse in which he ended up being right, but only after a piece of paper was slipped in front of him from a ministry to confirm his position. He had to win. Uh, That has been his entire lifetime history, and it's part of the reason that he lasted so long. He would not step down. So wrong. Everybody else was wrong. 
How does Cuba move forward now that he has passed? Does it change much? Well, Raul has initiated the, the first element of uh, change. I mean, privatization is taking place uh, at a fast pace right now. It's very limited. It's only service industries, and, of course, it's driven by tourism. Uh, Raul is stepping down in two years, and then we'll begin to see what does the new, younger generation um, want. I don't think there's any intent of uh, reshaping the, the polity there. I, don't, I think they want to hang on to power in the current state structure. But we have a new president in the states, and we have Obama's legacy that is now potentially going to be challenged. I think um, what Obama has done in terms of putting, trying to put the past relationship behind us and move forward so that American business can get involved, so that we can sponsor private enterprise as a catalyst to pressure for democracy as we define it in Cuba is now at risk, not least uh, President-elect Trump put in place last week one of the most hardline, hardline pro-embargo Cuban-Americans in his major treasury team, and it's the Department of Treasury that oversees the embargo regulations. Will we see much progress in Cuba with this passing, or will it still move relatively slowly? I, I don't think it makes any difference, no. uh, really. I mean, we're already a decade into a post-Fidel era under Raul. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, it really signals the, the closing of the next-to-last chapter in the book uh, of the Castro era. Um, so we won't, won't really know until Raul steps down, because Raul had replaced all of Fidel's men, and Fidel was history in the, the broadest sense of it by five or six years ago. How is the U.S. viewing this, do you think, and, and what does a, a Trump win mean for Cuba? Well, I'm, I'm kind of dismayed at the, the news reporting out of the states, because it is driven by this unifocused perspective from Miami, the embittered Cuban-Americans, I empathize with their perspective, I understand it, but it, it really doesn't serve anybody well because it really doesn't speak to the, the broader picture that I've tried to put across to your listeners this morning. Um, and, of course, it helps shape the president-elect's viewpoints, especially when he's got somebody like Mauricio Clavine in the Treasury Department um, helping to shape Washington's policy put it back where it was a decade ago, shaped by the Cuban-American exile community. That is not a recipe for progress for Cubans on the island or for international relations. As tourists, do we really know what life is like there when we go and visit? Absolutely. Absolutely you do. Um, I have been traveling, as I say, for 25 years. I used to go as a journalist. Cuba denies me a journalist visa these days. Uh, I've been going for professional research and, of course, leading tours. I've traveled thousands and thousands of miles, including on my own motorcycle, for three months. I have never not been able to go anywhere I want. You stay with Cubans, the tours that I lead, motorcycle tours, etc. Uh, we stay with Cubans in, in their family homes. Um, as individuals and as groups, we dine in private restaurants. You're free to, to speak to any Cuban you want. And, um, yeah, there's no, there's all this, this nonsense about um, you only see what you, you're allowed to see. It's just, it's just BS, quite frankly. So your thoughts on the prime minister's comments on the passing of Fidel Castro? Um, I understand where they came from. And I understand you have to put in perspective that, um, you know, his father, Pierre, had visited 
Cuba in 76 and was a personal friend to Fidel and that uh, mm-hmm. the young prime minister therefore regarded him almost as a member of the family. So that shapes his affection for Fidel. I understand it and I support it. Uh, I, I understand that he has more recently walked back some of his comments vis-a-vis acknowledging the human rights issues. Uh, which need to be acknowledged, but we all know about that. I, I understand where he came from, and I can certainly endorse his opinion, because he was a great character. doesn't mean he was a likable character uh, internationally, but he was a person of international stature. Right? That's why Time magazine named him uh, one of the top characters of the 20th, 20th century, and he had a seminal influence on international politics. And he also, uh, as... Um, Prime Minister Trudeau was referencing. He did a tremendous amount for the Cuban people. We just acknowledge it was at a brutal cost. Joining us has been Christopher Baker, travel writer and photographer expert on Cuba's cultural, politics, history and economics. Christopher, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Uh, Please go to my website, ChristopherBaker.com. ChristopherBaker.com. That's ChristopherBaker.com. Thank you, Christopher. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in Lana Wiley, professor in the Department of Political Science at McMaster University, expert on Cuba and Canada relations, uh, and is with us now. Hello, Lana. How are you today? Fine. How are you? I'm doing very well. How has the world's perception of Castro changed over the years? Or has it? Well, I mean, it depends on who you are. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone seems to have a very different perception of Castro and of Cuba, um, you know, if you're in Miami, you have one perception. If you, um, you know, are a neighbor of Cuba, you maybe have a different one. If, we're, if you're Donald Trump, you have a different one. If you're Justin Trudeau, you have a different one. It seems like a lot, there's a lot of different perceptions of Castro and how he's changed over the years. How can um, we have so many different perceptions when in the end he's a dictator? Well, because he, he is different things to different people. He's affected different people's lives very differently. For example, I mean, Cuba is well known for all their medical internationalism, all the help they send, the aid they send to other countries. Um, after hurricanes, I mean, they've been in Haiti. Those countries are are very appreciative and welcome the immense help that Cuba has given them. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, obviously in Miami, Castro seen very differently. So uh, the, the Prime Minister's comments, in line, out of line, uh, more a personal perspective than a Canadian perspective or a diplomatic perspective? Well, I think it was both personal and diplomatic and Canadian, so all three, essentially. I mean, personal, obviously, we all know about the close relationship between uh, Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, and uh, Fidel Castro. Um, diplomatic because, you know, he's essentially following the line of what, uh, you know, a lot of world leaders say when uh, a leader of a country dies, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the diplomatic solution is not to point out the the potential problems. And then Canadian, yes, well, this essentially, I mean, he's coming under criticism, just as his father did in the 1970s, for not being critical enough of Castro. But whether you agree with him or not, Trudeau's remarks are largely consistent with Canada's policy toward Cuba. It's sort of one of quietly encouraging change, um, raising human rights in one-on-one meetings, for example, with Raul Castro, rather than public criticism or isolation. So was Castro a good leader? And obviously this depends on who you ask. Is this about the leader or is this about the spread of communism? 
Well, I think uh, Castro was more about nationalism than con- communism, um, in my opinion, anyway. I mean, he's sort of the current, or well, current, this century's or last century's embodiment of um, Jose Marti, which is, uh, you know, the father of Cuban independence. And I think if Cubans, those Cubans that remember him fondly, remember him more for that, um, his nationalism, his ability to, you know, finally give Cuba a voice against the United States rather than, you know, any of the communist things he's done, except for they do appreciate, I mean, the education and healthcare improvements in Cuba. Was he a remarkable leader? Um, remarkable in one sense, certainly. I mean, he's well-known. He changed the face of uh, Latin America. He, he was a voice of uh, the non-aligned movement, um, the Global South. So in that sense, I mean, you, he's certainly notable as a leader um, in, the, in, in history, and it will go down that way. Where will the country move now? I mean, you know, it's almost become charming that the country is stuck in 1959. I mean, obviously, since his brother took over, that's slowly changing. It is, and I think it's going to continue to slowly change. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it, every time I go to Cuba, and I go quite a bit, uh, things are slowly, slowly improving as far as the, the economic conditions and freedoms for uh, the Cuban people. So, you know, they're allowed to buy and sell cars, um, you know, rent out their homes to uh, foreigners, that type of thing. So they're getting more opportunities. People are still frustrated, don't get me wrong. But um, I think a lot of people, you know, just are hopeful and looking forward to the future and hope that these uh, reforms continue. Does his death speed change up? I don't think so um, anymore uh, because really Fidel has been sort of out of the picture for about 10 years now. Yeah. I mean, he's an advisor. He's, he's uh, you know, well-respected um, by the powers that be in Cuba, but I don't think he's had any major play in the decisions. In fact, a couple of times he's come out, um, you know, and cr- criticized his brother's decisions um, over, for example, warming relations with, with the United States. So, I wouldn't. I, I don't think his death is going to change anything. I think Raúl Castro and the uh, the other people, the other communist uh, party elites, are firmly in power in Cuba and have been for a while. And I don't think this is going to change anything. More likely to change would cause changes if the United States policy changed under Trump. That's something more likely than it being changed now because Fidel Castro has died. How long will Raul stay in power? I understand it's only a couple of years. What happens after that? Yeah, well, um, they've, uh, the, the vice president, uh, Miguel Diaz, is set to uh, take over at that point in 2018. Um, but keep in mind, um, uh, Raul Castro is, you know, he won't be president anymore, but he'll still be head of the um, Cuban Communist Party, which does have considerable power in Cuba as well. So will it continue to move forward or will it stall, move backwards with new leadership? I can't predict that future. I don't know. I mean, Diaz is known as sort of a hardline Marxist, so it's hard to say whether he will continue to push things forward or not. I think there there's a debate in Cuba about that. I mean, people certainly see the income inequalities now that are arising from um, you know, those people who have access to tourist dollars and can have run private businesses now earn, you know, 10 times more than the state employees. And so people see that, and that's a problem. Obviously, they have to adjust to if they're going to keep moving it forward. And I know some hardliners don't like that. I mean, they would like to go back to everyone earning the same wage. So 
it's hard to say. Where is the young mind in Cuba? Uh, are, are they respective of, uh, of the past and in Castro, how he got them to where they are? Or is there an appetite for change there? There's certainly an appetite for change. Um, but I do think, among some people, they do uh, certainly respect the changes, some of the changes that were made under Castro the health care, the, educa- the free education, the housing, that type of thing, I think they're fairly proud of, and they're proud of their independence um, against the United States. I mean, they love American pop culture, don't get me wrong about that, but they certainly like this idea that Cuba is for Cuba, Cubans, right? That Cubans are going to decide the future of um, the island, Not it's not going to come from Washington or Miami. Uh, what is the future with relations between the U.S. and Cuba? Obviously, we saw Barack Obama and him reaching out. What happens now? Uh, you know, I do not make predictions about Trump. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, every prediction anyone ever makes about Trump is, turns out to be wrong. Yes. Um, I, it's, it's hard to say what he's going to do. Um, there's certainly, uh, Obama has certainly tried to set things in motion to make it harder to backpedal on some of these uh, policies, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. Uh, considering um, he, he wants warmer relations with Russia, why wouldn't he with Cuba? Um, well, that's a complex story. I mean, and we don't have time for the mm-hmm. entire story of the Cuban-American community in the United States, but um, let me try to make the short version that um, there's a group of um, Cuban-Americans, mainly in Miami, um, especially the older um, cohort, the older generation, is mm-hmm. very um, opposed to any kind of engagement with Cuba. However, there's a younger group of Cuban-Americans that are quite open to this idea. And I think um, Trump promised, made a bunch of different promises to different people in Miami, and it, it sort of depends on if he decides he's going to carry through with some of those promises or not. How do you think Castro will be remembered? I mean, there's lots of, of uh, celebration and mourning going on over the next several days. What, what are we going to be saying five, ten years from now? I, I don't know. I mean, I certainly think he'll be remembered. I mean, he certainly had a major impact. Uh, whether he'll be remembered positively or not, that's, that's hard to say. Um, I think we'll just have to wait and let history be the judge. Will this country continue to mo- move towards some sort of, or will it? Is it moving towards some sort of democracy? Um, I think it's heading more towards what we would think of as democracy. Whether I, I don't know how how far they will they will actually move towards an electoral democracy that we have here. Right? I mean. That's hard to say. They realize there's problems with their system. How they fix it, I'm not sure what the, what the plans are. How can communism survive in, in, in 2016, 2017? How can it modernize and make people feel that they're not being left behind? I don't know. I mean, it's difficult. I mean, even Cuba, who has their own particular brand of communism, um, is making drastic changes to it. Um, you know, the, they're reducing, uh, all of a sudden, not everyone works for the state anymore. I mean, there's uh, less subsidies for things. There's more free markets. So I'm not sure, you you know, it's even, I don't know at what point it stops being communism. Um, is there an appetite to continue the way they are? Or is there, uh, you, you talked about the movement for change. Um, do, do you see that changing over time? Do you see unrest? 
Um, I don't see unrest. I see gr- continuation of the gradual change that's been happening. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't predict unrest. I mean, there there doesn't seem to be the appetite there for it. But I mean, who knows? Perhaps. But I think the the government realizes people are very uh, anxious for change, and I think that they are moving in that direction, trying to. I think you know make the country a better place, but also, you know, prevent any unrest. Is this an opportunity for the U.S. and Cuba to better relations? Um, there's always opportunity for better relations. I don't think this um, stands out as a particularly important one, um, only because Fidel Castro has been uh, sort of out of the picture for the last 10 years. Uh, it's certainly, it's symbolic, perhaps, but, I mean, from if if we take what Trump has said, it doesn't look like relations are going to get uh, any closer if he, you know, follows through on some of his rhetoric, which, who knows. How do, or how did other leaders view Castro? Um, well, it's, it's varied. Like I said, he's very well liked by many leaders of the Global South um, because he's he was a leader of uh, advocate, he was an advocate for um, the, the Global South, the less developed countries, um, very strong advocate, very willing to, um, you know, send help to other countries, that type of thing. He was, uh, he's really liked in South Africa and lots of other countries for the assistance he has given. Um, obviously, you know, his record is mixed, especially when you obviously go to the United States. Certainly he was hated in the U.S. up until um, President Obama came into power. What was his relationship like with Russia? Oh, well, obviously during the Cold War, they were quite close. I mean, Russia provided Cuba with enormous resources at that point. But then obviously at the at the end of the Cold War, um, the Soviet Union pulled completely out of Cuba, um, and they were left stranded uh, with, and they, had, they went through this period called the Special Period in Cuba, where um, people suffered an, an extraordinarily... Um, a huge way with, I mean, and high malnutrition rates because all the subsidies from the Soviet Union were gone very, very quickly, and they had to adjust. So, I mean, Russia now in Cuba, Russia is trying to get closer to Cuba once again, but I think Cuba is very hesitant, and they see it again, saw it again with the relations with Venezuela, to become too closely attached to any one particular power um, then when that support is withdrawn, um, it's very, very hard on the Cuban people. So I don't see them getting back the same closeness of relationship with Russia that they have with the Soviet Union, but time will tell. Uh, Lana Wiley has been with us, professor in the Department of Political Science, McMaster University, expert on Cuba and Canada relations. Lana, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. All right, thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.